0: Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Mera, and this week on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Carl Fielder, CEO of Neutral Fuels. During this episode, we discuss his decades of entrepreneurial experience, beginning with how he started his first company in 1990 and later sold it to Microsoft for his first exit. Since then, Carl has built and sold five companies and has led two companies to their initial public offering, which leads us to his latest venture, Neutral Fuels, where he set up the first biorefinery in the UAE and demonstrates how a non-environmentalist can make significant impact by just doing business. We cover a lot in this episode, so join us as we dive into the conversation. So we're sitting down with Carl Fielder, CEO of Neutral Fuels. Before we get into all the work you're doing with Neutral Fuels, this quote stood out for me prior to this interview, and it's, I'm not an environmentalist, I'm just trying to save the planet. So before we get into all the environmental and all the other work you're doing, can you tell us a bit about your background?
1: Oh gosh. Well... My last boss was in 1989, and he said to me, Carl, you have to realize you are unmanageable. And I took that as a compliment, but I don't think he meant it as a compliment. I think he meant there is something about you that just means you shouldn't work in companies. And the next year, I started my first company with six friends, and that was my first startup. It was a software company, and that went on to be fairly successful. Uh, 1990 was Gulf War I. There was no money being invested by VCs. There was no way of raising any money. So we did our own British equivalent of a garage startup. We rented a little room at the back of one of the um, universities in the UK. We slept there. We worked there seven days a week. Everybody did everything. Uh, I was officially in charge of sales, but that just meant I ended up testing the software and trying to work out how to go out and make some money out of it. And for a whole year, not only did we not make any money, not make a salary, but we put all of our life savings into it. I went to the bank, I'm not going to tell you which bank because they might prosecute me, but I went to the bank and said I needed a new car. In those days, they never asked to see the car, so I managed to borrow money for a car that never existed. I put that into the company, I sold my existing car and walked to the uh, office. We put all of that into the company, we worked like crazy. And in the second year, we managed to find a deal with IBM. And we pre-sold them a whole year's worth of subscriptions to our software and got a check for a million dollars. And that was our starting money from selling our software. Uh, we kept on growing the company. We set up resellers all over the world. And in 1995, we sold the business to Microsoft. And as a startup story, I started my first company in '95 and exited to Microsoft. That's been gold, and I've dined out on that ever since. Um, if you want to go back even further than that, um, originally I'm an engineer and even further than that, uh, I come from a pretty poor background and I've worked like crazy my entire life to get where I am. Uh, I think that entrepreneurs are born and not made. I think they can be made better with training. But if you're not born to do this sort of stuff, then don't even try. You won't have the stamina, you won't have the physical characteristics that are necessary to achieve. The... The characteristics of entrepreneurs are well documented by the psychologists and by lots and lots of people who have written books. I wrote my master's thesis on the psychology of entrepreneurs uh, in 2006. And that was fascinating. That's like putting yourself in the psychologist's couch and working out what's going on in my funny head. But honestly, we are weird. Uh, We suffer from a spectrum disorder. Uh, My analysis would say that there's about 3% of the population are actually cut out to be entrepreneurs maybe half of them have realized it and half of them are just very unhappy bunny rabbits working in big companies they don't know why they hate going to work every day they don't know why they hate their boss they don't know why they can do everything better than their boss they just haven't realized they're entrepreneurs the other 97 percent of the population i don't know i don't understand you guys
0: this was back in the uk that first
1: startup the first startup was in the uk um we started uh, selling in 1992 in south africa by '93, we had operations in about 10 countries, and in '94, we had a reseller in South Korea who was reselling our software, and Bill Gates came to the show and saw what we'd done on the new Windows NT platform. We'd originally been on the Unix platform, and we were one of the first major applications to port from Unix onto NT. He was very impressed with what we'd done. January uh, '95, the phone started ringing and it was Microsoft saying, we're really interested in what you're doing. That exit was really strange. Um, Microsoft was all over us for about six months and the exit was calculated on a multiple of the previous two quarters of revenue. And I would uh, advise to any entrepreneur is that's not a great way of doing things. Not when you're in with a beast like Microsoft.
0: So how did the recording relationship go with Microsoft? You said it was six months? Well,
1: they, they flew a whole team over to the UK because although we were international, we still had the headquarters of all the development there. And they brought over, um, in fact, a TV and a video. Um, the reason being in those days, the American video system was incompatible with the British televisions. So they actually flew a television and a video over and played us a video in front of all of our programmers. And I have to tell you that most of those guys, they're just like great programmers everywhere. Lock them in a room, feed pizza under the door, and just leave them alone. They're fantastic. But they had no idea about what was going on in the world. So when Microsoft came over, and there was videos of them water skiing on the lakes in Seattle, and said, this is what life is like working for Microsoft, they said to them, do you do that? And the lady, and funny enough, a few years later, I met her at a dinner party. But she said, "Yes, I do that every morning before I go to work." The guys signed up, and we agreed to sell out to Microsoft, without realizing and without reading the weather forecast. Seattle is one of the rainiest places on the planet. There's no way you're water skiing every morning before you go to work. But we bought the story, hook, line, and sinker. Microsoft's a great company, and most of the team actually moved to Seattle. Many of them are still there. They had a great time, and I have to say it was probably for them the biggest life-changing event. For me, I didn't particularly want to join the, one of the world's biggest companies. I moved to South Africa, and I joined a bike gang.
0: That was a detour I was not expecting. <laughs> so <laughs> post-exit, I was about to ask you, what did you decide to do?
1: I It was a problem. I mean, for fellow entrepreneurs out there that are about to do it, that was my first exit. I should just get into the conversation that, I've now done five trade sales and two IPOs. Um, That was my first one. And I was still young. Uh, I'd put life and soul into that company. And, And all of my friends worked for the company. All of my social life revolved around the company. All of my travel expectations of going around the world. I'd been loads and loads of places. I'd done loads of great things. And then the next day after the deal, it was all over. I'd lost all my friends. I'd lost all my social contacts. I'd lost everything that meant anything to me. And in that whole process, I found that I'd fallen in love with South Africa. Uh, it was a fabulous, fabulous country. Uh, Nelson Mandela had just been let out of jail. We were running up to the first free elections. It was a land of hope and a land of people coming together. And I absolutely loved it. So I was fortunate. i have been riding Harley Davidson's uh, this year for 30 years. Um, and I saw this as an opportunity to take some time out. Had some money in the bank, was a great country. I tell you, riding motorbikes in South Africa is just astounding. So I bought a bike there, I did prospect for a year, uh, and then I joined a bike gang, full-on, full-patch MC. And how long were you with the... I was, I paid my dues for six years with the MC, but I, uh, after three months of going out and getting trashed every night, I decided life was better than that, and there was more important things for me to do with my little grey cells. So um, it was about three months after the uh, exit that uh, i met the professor of uh, University of Cape Town of computer science and was telling him about the business that we'd just sold. And then he said, well, what are you going to do next? Obviously, with the logical assumption I was going to do something next. And so I uh, got chatting with him. And in the end, that ended up with us hiring 12 graduates from UCT Uh, opening an office in uh, Camps Bay, which is the most beautiful beach area of Cape Town Um, and then we started our second company there Uh, put the sales office in Johannesburg Um, we reached profit there in our, I think certainly in the first six months Um, it was was great starting a business when you've got money is definitely easier than starting a business when you've got no money Um, but That just meant that the pressure was on to grow even faster. Uh, We moved the headquarters of the company to the UK in 97. We opened up in Washington, D.C. in 97, in Melbourne in 97. In 98, we won an award for the fastest-growing software company in America. Um, And in the end, we had 13 offices on that business, and then we sold it in 2000. And that was, again, the same thing. All of my friends worked for the company, Everything I wanted to achieve, I'd done. I mean, by that company was even more successful than the first one. Uh, I flew Concorde three times. I was flying around the world first class, staying in all the best hotels, traveling everywhere I ever wanted to go to. And yet, the day after we sold it, what was I left with? I mean, okay, there's a number in a bank account, but actually that's not very satisfying. And that comes back to my point about entrepreneurs. We are weird. We're not actually motivated by money. We're motivated by success by showing the rest of the world that they're wrong and we're right, and by proving that we can do stuff that's mostly impossible. And that's what drives us. We are truly weird people.
0: And what eventually brought you to Dubai then? Or how many more ventures were there prior to that? Oh,
1: gosh, there was a lot of hopping and skipping between now and then, and a load more trade sales. Uh, Grew another couple of companies, did uh, uh, two IPOs um, of tech companies. In Um, London? uh, One in London, one in Johannesburg. Um, and ended up the end of two thousand and six, we just sold an encryption company. Uh, which, by the way, if you want to take me down the route of blockchain, I could bore you for senseless about blockchain. But I know more about encryption than any normal human being should actually know. Um, but anyway, the end of two thousand and six, we just sold. Uh, my wife, three kids, we went on holiday, and she said, "Carl, you got to do something more important than making money," because she understands me, and because she realised where we got to, and. I said, well, darling, what's more important than making money? And she said, you've got three children. We're destroying the planet. They've just released this Al Gore video, which was the first Inconvenient Truth. Um, Tony Blair had just gone on the television saying it was really important that we do something about climate change. Um, We'd had uh, the IPCC first report coming out, or it wasn't the first, but it was one of the reports coming out saying this is really bad. And probably the worst of the worst was, if you're British, you'll understand, the CEO of Marks & Spencers had said it was serious. Now, I mean, if it's going to affect my wife runs, it's definitely going to be something that I need to take care of. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so the CEO of Marks & Spencers said, that this is plan A because there is no plan B. We have to do this. We've only got one planet. So Sarah said to me, well, you've got to save the planet. And I said to her, well, there's no money in saving the planet. Nobody who's chasing around, hugging trees and saving orangutans has ever made any money. And she said, "Well, if you think you're so damn clever, you work out how to save the planet and make money at the same time." Now that's a challenge that I could really get my teeth stuck <laughs> into. And certainly, save the planet—that's a big one, you know. Build a man base on Mars—that's pretty big. But saving this whole planet with seven and a half billion people—that's a pretty big challenge. I reckon I can get my teeth into that one. So we spent—we were due to go on holiday for a week. Um, she laid down the challenge at the end of the first week. We called the airline and called the the villa rental company and extended our stay there for another week. Just before that, um, I said I'd finished my master's thesis in 2006, which was a very busy time, um, selling a company, writing a master's thesis, doing an MBA. Um, but in that thesis, I got to meet Mike Southern, who wrote a great book called The Beer Mat Entrepreneur. Um, nothing to do with beer, but it's all basically that the advice you need about starting a business can be written over a pint of beer, in a pub, and it could all be written down on a beer mat. And one of his great challenges um, was that any decent entrepreneur should be able to start a business and get four people who have paid jobs somewhere else, get those four people to quit their jobs and join you without telling them what the company's going to do. That was his challenge to any entrepreneur, and, and as I say, we're weird. So I saw that as a bit of a red rag, and so sitting on an island in the middle of the Atlantic on holiday with my wife and kids, I called four friends and said, guys, I'm starting a company. I'd like to quit your jobs and come join me. And every one of them said yes. I didn't tell them what the company was going to do apart from, and I cheated slightly. I said, we're going to save the planet.
0: So there was a thesis. There was or... at
1: least a thesis. I mean, it was a pretty big, wild, hairy goal out there. But it was a, it was, uh, we at least knew which direction we were going in. And they all agreed, and, and I was quite astounded. And so the next day I got up early and I wrote a website for the company and rung my accountant in London and said, you've got to register a bunch of companies. And so we registered a group structure, a whole bunch of companies, got the website up and running, got everybody email addresses, re- wrote everybody an offer letter and said, okay, here's a formal offer letter, this is how much we're going to pay, this is what we're going to do. And so by the time we got back from holiday, we'd founded a company, and that was a company called The Neutral Group, um, and well, the neutral group's pretty simple now. Uh, at the time it was we didn't know what we were going to do but now we know. Neutral group sits between big companies who need to reduce their carbon footprint and their climate change impact and the technologies that they need to adopt in order to be able to do that. The technologies that they need tend to sit within small startups and entrepreneurial ventures and big companies are useless at engaging with small companies. So we just sit as a bridge between those two things. That's the sort of idea. We got a bit derailed because in uh, 2010, we were explaining to McDonald's what we'd done for DHL. So in 2007, we wrote DHL's Global Climate Change Strategy um, for the next 10 years and then spent three years helping them implement it. And then I ran into the McDonald's senior people and said, this is what we've just done for DHL. And McDonald's said, well, we'd quite like you to do some of that for us, please. And in the process of looking at McDonald's um, strategy for sustainability, we realized that they produce enough waste cooking oil that they could be self-sufficient on fuel. And this was like a light bulb going off, because as a business model, when you're operating such a complex and wonderful supply chain that they do, the last thing you want is the variability of international oil and diesel prices to impact the margins that your franchise or your own restaurants are making. So he said to them, how about disconnecting your transportation costs from the world oil market? And they said, this sounds like a cool idea. Now, the trouble with cool ideas is that you have to then deliver upon them, especially if you're me. So um, we'd been doing some work for DHL in Dubai, for Dubai Economic Department, looking at the carbon footprint of, of Dubai. This was back in, gosh, must have been 2008, 2009. And I'd had a chance to meet the wonderful people at Dubai Economic Department uh, as part of that project. And we said to them at the time, have you thought about alternative fuels? And they said, well, come on, this is the fuel capital of the world. What do you mean alternative fuels? And we said, no, you know, the world's changing. We need to look at these things. So we did a study then and came to the conclusion that for um, commercial vehicles here, there was really no viable alternative of any scale other than biofuels. So we looked at hydrogen, we looked at hydrogen fuel cells, we looked at doing things with LPG, LNG, electric vehicles. But for commercial stuff, trucks, big buses, big prime movers, there was just no alternative apart from biofuels. And guess what? Nobody was doing it in the whole of the Middle East. So I made that crazy statement and said to both McDonald's and to uh, Dubai government, if you give me permission to do this, I'll build you a factory. And... Dubai government thought about it for a while and then came back and said, Yeah, do it. And then they looked at me in the eye and they said, You know, Carl, the good news is we're giving you permission to do this. The bad news is you must not fail. I thought, Okay, nothing like a little bit of pressure. Um, McDonald's has their corporate headquarters in Dubai for 16 or 17 countries. So there was a good relationship between us and the corporate anyway. And they said, Well, if you can make it work in Dubai, which has one of the lowest fuel prices in that whole region, and you can make this thing profitable and sustainable in economic terms, then uh, we reckon this will work anywhere. So prove it. So they go, that's that challenge. And when you said factory, is that a biorefinery? It's what you might call a biorefinery. Um, we take in waste products and we turn out European standards compliant fuel that you can drop into any vehicle. And as we sit here today, we've now completed more than 12 million kilometers on the McDonald's fleet, running only on completely zero carbon footprint biofuel. Off their own From oil. their own cooking oil. And so for the last um, over eight years, the delivery carbon footprint of the McDonald's uh, restaurants has been zero in the UAE. And no customers had to change their behavior. The food tastes the same. Um, but we've dropped their carbon footprint significantly.
0: And I think one thing you mentioned was they also don't need to retrofit their vehicles, there's no barrier. There's no
1: changes required to the vehicles, there's no modifications, there's no drop-in fuel economy. Um, That's through some pretty clever applications of the technology. And so in the end, what we've found is that Neutral Fuels is sort of a software company that happens to make biofuels. And that's probably a bit unfair on some of my chemical colleagues, but... That's the reality, is that we, we help McDonald's and our other um, suppliers, uh, but McDonald's is, the, is our main uh, partner in this. We help them monitor the quality of their cooking in the restaurants because we tag, using a tracking system and a cloud-based service system, we tag all of the oil that comes from each of the restaurants and then give them feedback through a portal that tells them this is the quality of the oil and this is which restaurants are underusing or slightly overusing the oil. Um, That then allows us to optimize our production chemistry. Uh, We've got a bunch of IoT sensors that run through the factory. We then, when we're supplying the fuel, we use internet-connected fuel dispensers that use IoT sensors to measure when we send our our tankers to replenish the fuel tanks. And also we track the fuel consumption per vehicle using both IoT and cloud-enabled services. So at the end of the month, we send our customers a bill on an Excel spreadsheet. Now, nobody's doing anything like that in the Middle East. In fact, most of the customers, not McDonald's, but most of our customers have no clue what their fuel consumption is on a day-to-day basis. We can give it to them on two decimal points and tell them how they can improve it. So actually, our goal as a business is to help our customers use less fuel. So we're a fuel company that's objective is use less fuel, and nobody gets their head around that either.
0: Speaking of the neutral group itself... Was set up to be a bridge between, let's say, startups and corporations, yeah. but now it sounds like neutral fuel itself well, is a startup.
1: The problem, as any entrepreneur has seen, is how do you handle the bandwidth? Um, if you ever watch Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, one of the, the rookie mistakes that always happens is the entrepreneur comes in and tells the judges, I'm doing this great thing and I want you to invest in my business. And they say, "Well, what else do you do?" And he goes, "Oh, I've got five other startups that I'm doing at the same time. I just want you to fund this one so that I can afford to do the other ones." And they all throw him out on his ear or her. And they, 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 they—it's a rookie mistake. What we found is the Neutral Group's pretty good uh, at running parallel. So we're currently Neutral Group's currently running three businesses. Neutral Fuels is taking up most of my time. We have Neutral Assets, which is an IoT tracking uh, company, and Neutral Software, which has been pretty successful at corporate carbon footprint tracking at the moment neutral fuels is generating most of the revenue so that's where most of my time is going Uh, we'll see how we go when we started neutral consulting was taking up most of my time until dhl bought it which was a bit of a bump in the road it was nice it was nice to have another exit that was my fifth trade so um but it was never my plan to sell any of these businesses uh neutral fuels is it's got a very clear trajectory towards an ipo Um, we're growing very, very strongly, uh, something over a 1,000% growth in the last five years. Hit profitability in our 11th month, so it's a fairly good business model. Um, But it's definitely taking up most of my time. So that's why I get to chuck so much tech into Neutral Fuels is because I've got to have an outlet for my creativity. And at the same time, they all
0: integrate pretty well in oh yeah of, of course how you describe the factory itself how there's iot sensors how yep. the, the bill at the end the excel sheet they get everything uh, i'm you know.
1: addicted to all the tech i mean what can i say i mean probably i'm going to have some sort of sensor sitting on my gravestone when i'm there
0: just going back to when you went to the Dubai regulatory authority or it was it ded
1: in this
0: yeah. case were there any red tapes you had to deal with in terms of this was the first time they were well, It was the first of its kind. As,
1: as you probably know, some of your listeners might not know, when you set up a business anywhere in the Middle East, you have to apply for permission in a particular category of activity. So you don't just get licensed to open a company, but you have to open a company that's going to do something specific. There was no category for biofuels. Um, so that was the opening challenge, is what are we going to do with that? So we tried; um, they tried to help us by giving us a couple of categories. And in the end, they said, well, tell you what, we'll give you a fuel production license. And then I, I looked at them and I said, OK, that's true. I'm producing fuel. And they said, yeah, yeah, It's only ever been applied to the oil and gas industry. Last time we gave one was to Shell in 1976. But, uh, and they paid quite a lot of money for it. But we like you, Carl, so why don't you have one of those? And I'm going, OK, yeah, that sounds great to me. So yeah, well, that was the first challenge. Um, the second challenge um, was really trying to do something that nobody's ever done before makes it very difficult for environmental permitting, for where you're going to site locate the thing, how you're going to explain this to customers, and you know all of the normal challenges for anybody that's pioneering. Um, luckily, through all of those years of setting up and running businesses, I've had too many experiences of doing things early. Um, and so I managed this time to try and get the, the timing just right. So just as we launched... Um, The business, uh, everybody was obsessed with the financial crisis and uh, and so they, they took their eye off the sustainability ball. That was good because with McDonald's and some of the other partners that we've got, we were able to build the business in the background without any profile stuff going on. So now in the last couple of years when people have suddenly switched back on to sustainability again, we're already there, we're well established, we've got all the tech sorted, we've got all of the standard stuff sorted, and we've got reference accounts, we've got proper business running, and, and it really positions us very, very well.
0: So what's coming down the pipeline for neutral fuels? I, I know you guys are doing expansions.
1: And... Yeah, this, later this year we're going to open our second and third facilities in other countries. Uh, we're hoping to put another facility into the UAE. Um, which will expand our capacity. We've upgraded our factory four times so far in terms of capacity. And I'd say we've probably run out of space where we are at the moment, which is that's inevitable. Um, we've, we've sort of all sorts of more efficient ways of using the current space, but in the end you just have to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, we need to move. So we're going to do that. Uh, we've got some very exciting technology coming down the line using totally different um, ways of creating biofuels. Uh, We believe we're the first people in the world to successfully commercialize an enzyme-based biofuel uh, that meets all the standards, and and we managed to achieve a 93% yield on it, which is like 20% more than anybody else. All of the tech, all of the chemistry for that's been done in the UAE, and surprisingly, all of it's been done by Arabic ladies. Uh, We're really keen on the diversity um, agenda here and showing that You don't have to be a boring guy uh, with a weird haircut to get on in in an engineering-style company. Um, As you can see in the office where we're sitting at the moment, everybody else is a lady. Um, And uh, I I like that type of environment. It suits my style. Um, But it also works well because they're just wonderful employees. They're wonderful members of the team. They contribute so well to the business.
0: Just to clarify, right now in front of us there are about four different fuels or biodiesel Um,
1: yeah you got uh, three different fuels there Uh, one of them is our pure B100 biodiesel Uh, that is made to the European standards using European equipment and indeed some of the chemicals we have to bring from Europe as well Uh, but we sell that here in Dubai it's made from the waste of Dubai and uh, processed and sold into Dubai then next to it's one that we blended with regular fuel and that's actually our most popular product we sell that to all sorts of people Um, That's meeting the European normal diesel standard, which by law in Europe has to have 5% biodiesel blended into it automatically. Then we've got an example of our uh, enzymatic biodiesel, and that sample is actually made from the equivalent of human poo. Uh, Yes, I did say poo. Um, Sewage, if you don't understand my English uh, version of it. Um, And then just to the right of that is some really horrible, gloopy stuff, and that's one of the more gloopy oils that we've managed to make biodiesel out of. It's an example of just how horrible you can start with an oil, not from McDonald's or anybody, and that's not food related, that stuff, it's just horrible, but we can still make a great fuel out of it because we've got really good chemistry. Is that
0: all happening at the same biorefinery?
1: Yep, all happens in the same place, um, using in fact the same equipment, which we've managed to heavily modify because we like tech and we like uh, doing that sort of thing. Um we have a lot of fun doing what we're doing. I, I think um, over the years, as I said, I've been running businesses for a long time. And I often get letters and comments and emails from people saying that I've ruined their career. Uh, why do you say I've ruined your career? They go, because I'm never going to work anywhere again that's this much fun. And that's what I've tried to, to bring forwards. I mean, starting and running a software company in the early 90s, that was a fun time. I mean, you probably, in looking at you can't remember what it was like. But can you remember, you you can't even imagine a world where you create a spreadsheet on one computer. There was no way of sending it to another computer. And even if you could send it, it wouldn't be readable on the other computer. You know, where we are today with WhatsApp and all the rest of the messaging and the way we treat technology, it was totally different. It was prehistoric. Um, And that, coming from that, to being able to apply some of my, Better ideas on tech into such an established business as the fuels business has really allowed us to to make great paces forward and and certainly we've differentiated. I can't see how anybody can catch us. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just being factual, because nobody in their right mind who runs a fuel business would spend as much money as we do on tech. They just think no 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 no. This is all about how much per liter you can charge for the fuel and how cheaply you can make it. And I'm into a value proposition of saying actually I I want my customers to use less of my fuel but I want them to make more money. And so that's what we spend a lot of time on is how to make our customers more efficient, how to make them happier and of course if they're happier and they love the tech, they stick with us. So we have an incredibly sticky in both literal terms and in both uh, economic terms. We have a very sticky proposition. You
0: just hinted at the team as well, the diversity in your team, as a serial entrepreneur, let's say. How do you go about finding the right candidates or building up the team?
1: That's a real challenge, actually. The first couple of startups I did, I followed a not-to-be-necessarily-recommended route, but I'll tell you what we did. First of all, we hired all our friends. And then we hired all our friends of our friends, and then we hired the friends of their friends. And in the second startup, we got up to over 100 people without hiring anybody we didn't know. And that meant we all knew each other. And in my uh, MBA thesis, I looked at a double-axis analysis which looks at um, sociability um, and shared purpose. It's a, something called the goffin and Jones uh, matrix. And sociability means do you actually like the people that you work with? And shared purpose means do you all agree on what the company's doing? And I've used that matrix to analyze businesses since and to work out what did and didn't work about them. And I've had businesses where everybody loves each other, but they haven't got a clue what the company's about. Now, in the early days, that may be okay. But when you've got an established business of 100 people, you better all know what you're doing. I've also worked in a couple of companies. I did a a couple of um, fixer-uppers in uh, 2004, 5, where I was helping VCs who'd invested in companies they put too much money in, and they didn't know what they were doing, and they were in their third, fourth year of operations and still hadn't made any money. So I went in to fix them, and I found this one brilliant company where everybody knew what the company was doing, but they all hated each other. And so that was like the opposite extreme. And so there's this magic quadrant in the top right-hand corner where everybody loves each other, and they all know what the company's doing. And when you can achieve that, it is brilliant. Nobody wants to go home at night. Nobody's stressed. In fact, on the weekends, you invite all the rest of everybody over to your house for a barbecue, and you end up talking work, but talking work in a more relaxed environment, so you get to solve problems in a better way. And it generally makes the whole culture addictive. And that little bit of of that sort of startup culture that I know is very prevalent in Silicon Valley and in other places, I've managed to transplant to Johannesburg, Cape Town, London, and now into Dubai. And I love it. I, I don't imagine how anything else could work in any other way.
0: When you started your entrepreneurial journey... Were there any role
1: models you tended to look to that 's a great question and if, and yet a fairly standard question for anybody who 's in my shoes um, i I could probably list more the people that are standard role models that i really don 't like um, and and I suppose that that 's the most honest answer is that actually i don 't really admire that many people anymore. Uh, they say you should never meet your heroes and i 've met quite a few of those. Classic answers to your question. Some of the sort of more famous entrepreneurs who've been there and done it, and I found them to be brilliant in some ways and hugely flawed in other ways. And I've always wanted to be more of a well-rounded human being. Um, and as I mentioned to you before we started the interview, for for years and years and years, I've been a lead singer in a rock band, and for me, that's about having the left brain and the right brain working simultaneously and being able to do more creative things than just run a business and inspire people and you know funny enough uh, last month I played a huge gig um, with my full band and we had a huge lighting system and a great sound system and it was fabulous and the next week I walked out to 1500 people at an oracle conference to do a keynotes for them and the two things in my head are the same this was me putting on a show for a really great audience that were actually taking something away from it. They were having an experience. They may have enjoyed it, I suppose. But to me, the two things have always been linked together. And I've never seen anybody else that does that. Um, I know a lot of the other CEOs of startups uh, either play guitar or they do other weird things. Bill Clinton played. You know, A lot of people that are in leadership positions do need a creative outlet um, but I've never found anybody that I would actually put on a thing and say, "Yeah, that's the person I want to be when I grow up."
0: The rock star aspect of your life—is that something you think you do to unwind from work, or is that something you um, that ignites your mind?
1: It's probably both. Um, certainly, when I'm trying—I mean, we we did a, a gig at the end of last year. Uh, we went. Uh, I'm not a youngster anymore. We went on stage at half past one in the morning, and we played until quarter to three in the morning. Trying to remember that many words of that many songs means I couldn't, f- for once, be thinking about the IPO and about the valuation and about how to drive sales and which particular customer was irritating me and which ones I wanted to thank. I had to be thinking only about what I was doing at that moment. So in that way, it was a way of switching off part of my brain and letting it go and do something else. Um, i do find it very very stimulating um and i have to say it gives me a good reason to stay fit we video most of the gigs and also i got a lot of friends that come to the gigs and there's nothing worse than having some guy up on stage that looks like a fat bastard and then you watch the video afterwards and you think oh my god why did i put those pair of jeans on i really shouldn't have been doing that so it does keep me fit and um, it's quite exhausting doing an hour and a half two hour show um and something that I really enjoy. My kids love it, apart from the daddy dancing, which I'm banned from doing. Um, but my kids love watching it, and they're quite proud. I mean, they're proud when they go to school and everybody says, well, what does daddy do? And oh, my dad's saving the planet. I mean, that beats everything else. My dad's a fireman, my dad's a pilot. doesn't matter, my dad's saving the planet. And that really, that pride is what keeps me going. And it definitely drives so many things, uh, not just in business, but also in my my private life.
0: What does your typical workday look like as the CEO of Neutral Fuels?
1: It's mad. i tell you, one of the things about the weird people that are entrepreneurs is that typically we don't sleep very much. Often I'm up at four o'clock in the morning, um, normally doing stuff, uh, irritating the rest of my team by sending them emails about things that I've just decided they need to do or things that are really important to me um i tend to to then and kind of have a shower about six um normally take a little while to spend with the family while they're waking up they're wandering they're wandering around all bleary eyed and i'm already bushy eyed and, and up and doing stuff but uh then spend a bit of time with the family try and get to the gym for eight um try and spend an hour in the gym get to the office with a coffee definitely need my coffee um and i'll probably only be in the office maybe one or two hours a day the rest of the time, I'm out meeting people because, again, like most entrepreneurs, I'm quite sociable. I like meeting people. I also think that so much of what I've achieved in the past is by actually being there. Uh, they say that you know success is built on the people that show up, but actually going out and visiting other people in their environments is a nice way of complimenting them and also of showing that you're actually interested in what they're doing. Um, and that gets more done. Um, I spend quite a while um, out. I, I don't tend to eat lunch. Um, probably get back to the office four or five in the evening uh, spend another hour or so uh, go home see the family again and then start work again probably about eight or nine uh, knock off maybe around midnight so probably, yeah, probably four or five hours sleep a night um, and that's when we're not doing a gig so if we've got a gig coming up I have to somehow slot in some rehearsal time uh, this evening we'll be rehearsing until 11 o'clock tonight uh, we've got a gig coming up on Friday um, weekends uh well weekends a bit strange concept to entrepreneurs um it's a frustrating time when nobody else is working and you don't know why um that's sort of way it works i mean the great thing about living in in dubai is that we work a, um, an arabic week so thursday most people go home but friday i've got all those people in london to talk to and everybody in the states to talk to so friday i can work Saturday I'm normally either recovering from whatever I've done during the week or I'm doing something nice with the family You've got to get that balance right but Sunday is a normal work day here so great I've got other people to go and play with you know it's it's really that that ideal environment where I've got a 6 day a week if I could find somewhere to live on the planet that was seven days a week, I'd probably do that too.
0: Geographically, Dubai works for you. <laughs> Dubai is
1: fantastic. I, I, I'm a, a great proponent of this environment. It's the most capitalist environment I've ever lived in in my life, and yet the most deep, genuine, meaningful. And as a tourist, you never see that. Um, before we moved here, I remember I bought a really nice car in the UK. And about second weekend to buying the car, somebody a key and went all the way down the side of my car, and when I drove in the kids to the school um, a couple of days later, I overheard some of the other parents saying, "Look at him in that flash car! I bet he stole it, or I bet he hasn't paid his taxes. I pay lots of tax. Um, I, I bet he'd done something wrong in order to get such a nice car." When I moved to Dubai, I bought the same car, just with the steering wheel on the other side. And my neighbor came over to me and he said, that's a really nice car. Can you take me out for a drive? And that's pretty much the difference in attitude. Here, if you're successful, people pat you on the back and say, great, good on you, really happy for your success. The tall poppy syndrome in the UK, Australia, some of the other countries, if you're successful, they hate you. And I like being liked more than I like being hated. Also, the business environment here is very much a case of if you want to do it and it's legal, get on with it. And we'll just encourage you and you can get on and be successful. And although there is a little bit of red tape, uh, most of that's necessary to make sure that people don't do stuff that's completely crazy and illegal. Um, but it's definitely the most forward-looking and fast environment I've ever been in. I've, I've lived and worked. I think the, the kids did a survey at school. And they reckon that I've worked in 47 countries and been a, a founded companies in more than 20 And this is the fastest place I've ever been. And it's just brilliant. Absolutely fantastic.
0: But even with the red tape, as you said, they're willing to work with you to come up with that new activity. It's
1: fantastic. If you run into red tape here, that's just an opportunity for another cup of coffee and another conversation. Because actually people are fascinated, especially in the government, because they genuinely want to improve everything. So you sit down with them. You say, hey, I've run into this bit of red tape. They say, oh, you're the first person that's told us about this red tape. How can we get rid of it. Or what, what's it stopping you from doing? They do genuinely want to know if that red tape is necessary. And if it is necessary, then that's great. Um, but if it isn't necessary, okay, we'll work out a process. And there have been a number of occasions, and I have to say, this I just love this. There have been a number of occasions where I have flagged up problems to people in government here. And two or three years later, it's gone away as a problem they've they've helped me get through it for my business then gone out and made sure it's a problem for other people as well and then changed government policy so it's not a generic problem for everybody it's wonderful
0: i just want to go back quickly to your long days and i I just want to see if are there any personal habits routines you tend to do that you consider are unique to yourself
1: gosh i think trying to get to the gym uh three times a week is a really good thing um My father-in-law, who is my great mentor for nearly a quarter of a century, he said that everybody should make time every day, half an hour, to think. Um, He used to think by walking. Um, I've got a dog, so I try and take the dog out for a walk and get a bit of thinking time then. Um, I think thinking is underrated. I think more people should spend more time just thinking in a reasonable environment. As I said, I've been riding Harleys for 30 years, I like to ride my Harley whenever I can, either into the work or or out into the desert at the weekends. And that's another bit of thinking time that I do. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any other sort of really strange things, I don't think. I, I drive my car, I like loud music, like most people probably do, probably sing too loudly in the car like most people do. People stop at traffic lights next to me and they look over and they go, oh my gosh, it's him again. Uh, but, you know, it's... It's not that. It's it, this, the, the hardest thing. I tell you, the hardest thing is entrepreneurs are definitely weird. Being married to an entrepreneur is the hardest thing in the world. My wife is just wonderful. But to be with somebody that goes to sleep at midnight trying to talk to you about their latest business idea and who wakes you up with a cup of tea at six o'clock in the morning and says, Now, darling, as I was saying last night, and she just looks at me and she says, Honestly, I've only just woken up. Yes, well, now you're awake. Now we can talk about this. And the great thing is that she balances out some of my more extreme characteristics. And she says that, in general, I I might have 10 great ideas. At least I think they're great. And we have something that we call the paper bag theory, which is I can generally get excited about the opening of a paper bag. And I can convince myself to be excited about the opening of a paper bag. And of my 10 great ideas, I don't know which of them are bad. She filters them. She says, generally, of those 10 great ideas, eight of them should never see the light of day and don't talk to anybody about them. The Mm -hmm. ninth one is pretty good and that'll be successful and the 10th one knocks it out of the park. Her job is to be able to filter all those down and to actually encourage me to go for the one that's going to knock it out of the park because I can't tell the difference. I'm just so excited about all of them all the time that I don't know. And if I didn't have her filtering, I'd certainly be less successful because I'd be running around trying to do too many stupid things.
0: I feel you on that. Going back to Dubai, we have a lot of visitors. We have a lot of tourists visiting the country. And also we have a very diverse population living here, expats. If you could post a message on Sheikh Zayed Road on one of the billboards, any message, non-commercial, not promoting your company, what message would you like people from around the world living in Dubai to see?
1: I think you really got to work out what makes you happy. Because if you can work out what makes you happy then you can probably align the rest of your world around it. Uh, I realized very, very long ago that I was happy setting my own direction and my own goals. And that gives me the freedom to truly succeed. So I think definitely find out what makes you happy. And to do that, you've got to think. And most people don't think enough. I already said you should take half an hour walking each day or thinking each day. But to do a little bit of self-analysis of What actually does make me happy? I know standing on stage singing with my band makes me happy. It's good for my blood pressure. It's good for my fitness. And I find it entertaining, and the audience doesn't mind it either. They don't throw things at me anyway. But finding what makes you happy then allows you to go on and do some of the things you have to do that don't make you happy because inevitably there are some of those. But you've got to have an overall sort of bank balance of positive happiness to allow you to overcome some of the negative bank drawings that happen. So I'd say work out what makes you happy.
0: That's a nice one. What book do you gift most often? And actually, earlier you talked about a podcast, so we'll throw that in there as well. Are there any podcasts you would
1: gift or recommend to people? Well, my favorite podcast at the moment was recommended by my eldest daughter, Caitlin. Um, She is just a superstar. And my three daughters are all superstars in different ways. Caitlin's a superstar because she keeps me up to date with music. Although I think some of the stuff's dreadful, but some of it really is good. Uh, and she drags me to gigs. Uh, but she also recommended this podcast, which is called No Such Thing as a Fish. And it's... Mentally stimulating in a very different way. Uh, it always comes up with four completely ridiculous facts every week, and somehow manages to make a half-hour podcast out of four completely crazy facts. Check it out; it's uh, no such thing as a fish. In terms of the book, the the best book that I recommend to people, uh, I'm not sure if it's still in print. Last time I looked for it, it wasn't in print, but I think they might have gone back into print. It's by James A. Michener, and it's called The Covenant, and It's written by an American, and it's a history of South Africa, but written from the original tribes that were there before any of the countries were there and before the Europeans came. And it's a history of what happened on that continent as the tribes moved around, as the Europeans colonized, the terrible things that everybody did to each other, black white colored whatever color they were they all did terrible things to each other and how that ended up in today's society and i find it fascinating because if you can look at the context of human beings living with human beings and you can work out what people care about which is generally i'd like to grow up peacefully i'd like to find somebody to fall in love with i'd like to have a family i'd like to have a happy home life if you can somehow find that in everybody in the world. Then you get a lot better relationships with people. I remember years and years ago, I started doing business in Japan. And as a Brit going to Japan, people said to me, Have you read the book on Japanese business? Do you know how low to bow? Do you know how to shake hands? Do you know when to nod? Do you know what to do? I said, I'm not interested in reading any of those books. Now, this is me being a contrarian as well, but they said, Why? I said, Because they are humans. As a human, I can relate to humans. And what I found in Japan was, here was another island nation, proud of a more than a thousand years heritage, who had not been conquered in a thousand years, and who were desperately worried about an invasion of Starbucks and other types of influence, that were changing the way that their thousand-year-old culture was working. And funny enough, that's identical to the UK we're an island nation, we've got a proud thousand-year history, and we don't like the way that our nation is being changed by different outside influences. Now, whether or not that's happened isn't happening or whatever. It gave me something common to talk to those people about. And then after we'd broken the ice, it turned out they only cared about finding somebody to love, settling down, having a family, and all the normal things. And so, yeah, business is important, and business is business, and you're going to have tough negotiations, and you're going to do these things. But when you boil down to it, You can sit down over a cup of tea or whatever is your fancy and talk to somebody about humanity and about people. And that, for me, has been the biggest thing going around the world. So The Covenant by James Michener, it shows how that continent started and how people did terrible things. And then people came through it all. And I think that's my great hope for the future, is climate change is real, it's serious, and it's happening. There are great people trying to make some big differences and big changes and businesses that are doing great things to address, ameliorate, improve the situation. But ultimately, I believe in the human spirit. And I think we will come through. Somehow or other, we will solve this issue and we will be able to live on our planet. But it takes people like me and a lot of other great people to work extremely hard in order to come up with solutions for it. That's very
0: optimistic.
1: You have to be an optimist. Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning.
0: Is there a piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self now after everything you've been through?
1: I think believe in yourself. I think that entrepreneurs naturally do. I mean, Schumpeter said in 1943 that um, entrepreneurs are defined by having an irrational self-belief, something that literally, if you analyze why do they believe in themselves, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I'm I'm not the best singer in the world, and yet I front a rock band. I'm not the best CEO in the world, and yet I run a pretty successful company. I'm not the best entrepreneur in the world, and yet I've had an amazing success rate and very, very few failures. I I don't know that you need to be the best at everything in order to succeed in life. Uh, again, coming back to my mentor, he said you only have to be average to get on. I think if you're slightly better than average, you can do better than just get on, um, but nobody tells you that when you're 20, when you're 20, you look at the world and you think, Oh, there's all these people out there that have made all these great success stories. And you read the books on how they founded this business and they IPO that, and they do all these great things. But what they don't tell you is that at the bottom of all of that, these people believed in themselves. They got up in the morning. Maybe they had somebody like my wife to tell them that's a stupid idea. That's a great idea. But if they got onto a good idea no matter how many people knocked them down no matter how many people said that's stupid they got up and carried on i moved to the middle east to open the first biofuels facility in the fossil fuel capital of the world and everybody told me i was mad and to me that was just like a red rag to a ball that was okay you all think i'm mad i'll show you and here i am 10 years later with a really successful business, actually being applauded by people for having the courage. So what they saw as stupidity and and absolute idiocy is now being described as courage. And that's what I wish my 20-year-old self had known, was that you can do the impossible. And in fact, the people defining what's possible and not possible, they're not people you want to spend much time with.
0: Speaking of the impossible, we know Expo 2020 is coming to Dubai and... Dubai is known for doing a lot of, let's say, moonshot type of ideas or thinking. If there was one project they could do of your bidding, what would you like to see them attempt to do?
1: Well, in fact, they've already announced it. So I'm stealing one of Sheikh Mohammed's great visionary projects. For the 100th anniversary of our country here, the United Arab Emirates, we're going to build a manned base on Mars. And we're going to have people living there. So by 2071, there will be a UAE manned base on Mars. And that, for me, is one of the most inspirational, visionary things that I can ever imagine. And that's what I would like to see happen. Not for me, but for my kids. And when I'm talking to my kids about that, they're starting to understand the engineering feats that will be required in order to do that. The amount of sustainable technologies that would have to be created in order to operate in a very, very different environment. Effectively, a planet that, is almost, that has almost been destroyed and we're now trying to repopulate it. We will have to learn so much and invent so much to be able to succeed on Mars that that will have such positive benefits on this planet. And that's what I think we should be aiming for. You're right. There's so
0: many different industries that need to be disrupted or at least pushed to the ne- nth level to achieve what, what that Mars shot
1: well, exactly. I mean, if you come back to the United Nations report at the end of uh, last year, they said, effectively, we've got 21 years to stop using fossil fuels. If you're on Mars, there aren't any fossil fuels. So you've got to somehow come up with a livable environment with power and with everything that you need to support a colony without using any fossil fuels. So that is part of the trajectory. is part of the reason. And the smart thing about the UAE... <clears throat> The smart thing about the UAE is the government has realized that the petrodollars today are a down payment on the non-petrodollars of the future. And that is such a visionary and optimistic way of looking at the resources that have been God given to us here that we can actually use for the future.
0: Are there any last words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners?
1: I'm not sure I've got any words of wisdom, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've learned over the years. I've learned a load of things that don't work. Um, I, th- I certainly think that uh, I've had an interesting career so far. Uh, I think scarily for most people. I reckon I'm about halfway through my career at the moment. I'm trying my best to make sure that I beat my two grandmothers who both were 102 when they were, uh, when they were dying. Um, I think the, 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 the key points um, that we've already said, people should think a bit more. People should do what makes them happy, identify what makes them happy, and go for a good long walk every day. And if you happen to be capable of it, sing in a rock band. Lastly,
0: where can our listeners go to learn more about yourself or Neutral Fuels?
1: Well, the best place to pick up on me at the moment is LinkedIn. Um, so I'm Carl Fielder you can find me on LinkedIn like many entrepreneurs I have a strange name Carl with a kicking Uh, Fielder is F-E-I-L-D-E-R or you can find me on Facebook Carl W. Fielder you can find me on my website carlwfielder.com I'm like a sort of one of those bad things I just keep going around and around and around you're going to find me somewhere and and you know what I'm, I'm happy if everybody wants to do that that's just great well thank you Carl for being on the show I forgot yeah. www.weplayrock.com that's What's where that? you find my band ok <laughs> well thank you thank you very much
0: you can find this episode's show notes on our website at com slash neutral we'd love to connect with you so follow us on facebook and instagram or reach out via our website If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.